why don't you do the introduction, Yule? You like to do them. You get them right every time. Welcome, everyone, to Sci-Fi and Fantasy Read-Along. My name is Yule. And I'm DM Phil. I'm ATN. And we are reading Shadows Linger. We're going to be doing uh, chapters 10 through 13. Yep. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. I am too. These were good chapters. Right. I think this is going to be just a, a great book all around. There hasn't been a boring moment yet, in my opinion. Well, you've already read it, right? You both have bo- both read this. This was a long ago. time ago. I don't remember reading this book, but I remember little pieces of it when I get there. I remember as I go along, and certainly I comprehend a lot better this time. And which is really funny is like some of my assumptions that I had the first time, I made them again, and they were wrong. <laughs> Do you guys remember the Black Castle? I mean, is that so obvious in this book that when you got back to it you're like oh i remember all this stuff i had forgotten about the black castle entirely yeah i don't remember i like i remember it as i'm reading and it's you know when you read along and you come across a cool part you're like oh yeah i remember that but but you know i think there's a reason that i don't remember the black castle and part of that is that glenn cook doesn't spend a lot of time describing the environment like there's a scene in one of the chapters coming up where they're driving the cart up to the black castle and shed is looking around and he doesn't recognize where he is. And I don't recognize where we are either because we've never seen it before. It's never been described before. And when he does describe like the neighborhood that he's driving through, it's very, very brief one sentence to explain where we are and what it looks like. And there's, it doesn't stick in my head because I don't see it in my head. It's not very elaborate or descriptive. We were just previously talking about it. It's like less is more, but in this case, less is not more. He spends a great amount of time with the people. So you get to know the people. He, he describes their actions really, really well. Their dialogue tells you a lot about who they are and what they're doing. But when it comes to the environment, it's not as clear a picture as some other people may give you. Like I could see Daruja stand in my head a lot of times. I can't necessarily see Juniper. There's another scene where Shed was following Asa. Cook lets you know the city's really crowded and Asa would never be able to detect Shed following him. I've never once had the sense that it's a bustling, crowded city. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you make it so that we understand. You know, if you're writing it and you say that there's people, but they're not important to the story other than the fact that they're... On the street. They're preventing him from being spotted. Yeah. All you have to do is just add a little statement in there that says, this time of day, it was it was high marketing time, and you know the streets were a bustle with people going about chores, activities, and errands. That's fine, but at the same time, we know what goes on in a city. We've read these books enough, and Glenn Cook tries to hip it up, at least as far as the writing style sometimes. And I enjoy that because it doesn't feel so stodgy like a lot of fantasy might. Spending a lot of time describing stuff that we really don't need. Let's yeah. face it, when you're reading George R. R. Martin books, especially like the, the Game of Thrones stuff and whatnot. <laughs> eating scenes. Oh my God, food forever. <laughs> they have I a know. Game of Thrones cookbook now for people that were enthused by his, his <laughs> emphasis on food. Whatever. He spends a lot of time. I mean, I can't believe people in medieval times eat that well. Um, I mean, the elaborate food that people consume is way more elaborate than I ever consume. You got people preparing it for you. All day long. That's all they do. All day long. That's their only job. They're the, the scullery maids and the cooks, you know? Like, haven't you seen Downton Abbey? No. This is somebody's job. All day long. That's all they do is they sit in the kitchens and make every meal for these people. 
the British popular archaeology show called Time Team was recently uploaded officially to YouTube, and I watched a whole bunch of them. And periodically they would go and like they would make a meal, a medieval meal or a meal contemporary from the dig that they were working on. So it could be Stone Age, Iron Age, Bronze Age, what have you. And everybody's always surprised at how good the food is. All right. Well, enough about food. Enough about George Martin. Why don't we get started with, oh, uh, hmm, last little announcement. We're going to be doing the same thing with these four chapters that we did in the previous episode where we do both Black Company chapters and then we're going to do both Juniper chapters. So I think the layout is we'll do chapters 10 and 12 and then we'll do chapters 11 and 13 because it flows better. Is that what you're thinking? It will make better sense to the listener. Yeah. All right. Tally turnaround. All right, so in the six years since the battle at Charm, the Black Company has been ever driving eastward. They are now approximately 2,000 miles to the east. Croker one day says, you know, I think I should uh, figure out how far we've traveled. And when he came to that, he was like pretty impressed, it sounded. It's a long way, man. It's not impressed. Maybe that's not quite the right word. Horrified? He's like shocked, horrified. <laughs> I can't believe we've been doing this. And the place where they are, is, I think the town is called Tome, and it's a nothing. And he's wondering, why Why are we even out here? Like, we have been driven to the edge of the Empire. It's dull. It's boring. There's nothing going on. The rebel has been pushed into another country entirely. Essentially, it's the majority way across North America. It's that far. There's a description of the plane of fear which they had to cross to get here, and apparently it was terrifying. It says a hostile, bitter land where none of the normal rules applied. Rocks speak, whales fly, corals grow in the desert, trees walk, and the inhabitants are the strangest of all. I thought that was fascinating, and it was a complete diversion from the rest of this world that we've encountered. We don't have any idea what causes it, but something that is fiddling with the natural order of things. It is a vector by which Glenn Cook can put anything in that area, and it's believable because nothing makes sense there anyway. This is a magical world, and sometimes you forget that. I forget that, anyway, because it feels down to earth, and then crazy magic happens. Does that sound so scary? It doesn't sound scary. If you told me there was an amusement park with all of that stuff, I'd be like, yeah, all right, I'm down. (laughs) But no, it's not. It's a dangerous, fearful place. Well, Croker did say that two people died there, Cougar and Fleet, and he didn't go into the details. He said he still has nightmares about it. All right, so One Eye approaches Croker, and he's like, hey, uh, I want to go see Goblin. Why don't you come with me? You know, there's safety in numbers kind of a thing. It's been a couple of weeks, I guess, and they haven't spoken since the debacle at Maddle's place. So One Eye wants to talk to Goblin, but won't do it without... Um... It's kind of like a, uh, a note of introduction or a letter of introduction. Goblin doesn't hate Croker, and here's Croker. Oh, it could soften the confrontation. He's your wingman. Well, One Eye apologizes to Goblin... Silent, who was there playing, was it Mumbledy Pegs? Yep. With Goblin, signs to Croker, hey, let's let them have a little privacy. They're prideful creatures. So Silent and Croker go outside. Do you guys, you know, understand that Goblin and Silent were playing Mumbledy Peg, like without hands? I don't know what Mumbledy Peg is. 
There's a couple of versions, but you throw daggers at each other's feet or you throw them at a little peg and you try to get as close as you can without hitting it. And I get, or unless you were hitting the peg, in which case you need to hit the peg. But they're doing it hands-free. So I guess they're just using magic to throw knives at each other. That makes a lot more sense now. Mm, All yeah. right, so they're throwing daggers. Okay, so when Croker and Silent have retreated outside and Goblin and One-Eye are making up, as it were, we get a refresher on the Lady and the Dominator's relationship. It's basically a refresher on what happened, some of the events that happened in the Black Company. That the Dominator was influencing the Rebel to attack the Lady, to get revenge because she left him in the ground. The Domination, the period during which the Dominator was active, is described as hell on Earth. And then there's a tussle inside, and everybody assumes the two wizards are back at fighting. But it turns out that contact has been made, and Goblin is having a fit. He's convulsing. This is how they communicate through him, right? The lady has made contact. So Croker goes to get the captain, who tells him to go and get the lieutenant. And when they all gather, they get their marching orders to head to the Barrowlands. But he said she was upset. It was important. I don't know what's going on. The name of the town they mentioned was Orr, which was also in the first book. But that's 2,500 miles from where they're at right now. 2,500 miles. And the Barrow Lands are beyond that even to the north. That is a long, long, long haul. And they're going to be walking. (laughs) And how long have they been walking now? Uh, Six years. Yowza. Right. The captain is like, hey, uh, we have to be there next week. What? They had to start leaving now. She wasn't in a hurry. She just wants them heading in the right direction. It's like just to get them going, it sounds like, or get them doing something. It's been made clear to us that the Rebel is no longer a threat in this region. There's no reason to have the Black Company out here. So turn them around, right. get them heading into a direction where they can be useful. Ugh. Yeah, I think Croker said that they were cursed by their own competence. Yeah, that was a great way to put it. Yeah, we do the hard jobs better than anybody so so they get used all the time you go and do any job if you do a really good job people will always be like hey get this person to go and do that thing if you do a terrible job they will conversely say don't have him do that he's bad at it oh this could be used to your advantage like if somebody asks you to do something you don't want to (laughs) do i worked with guys that would mess up their first job on anything every time on purpose all right so that's that chapter yes the only thing um, that, we, that we didn't mention, and it's actually an ongoing theme from our last episode, Croker was trying to find a story which he can use to inspire the Black Company because he recognizes that people are really down in the dumps and depressed, and they've been that way for a long time. He uses an excuse to not accompany One-Eye to go see Goblin. And One-Eye is like, you know that thing by heart. You know, you know every story already. That's right. All you do is sit around and read those books. Uh, get on over here and help me out. Do you think that he read to them The Black Company? Because he was like, maybe we need a series. Mm-hmm. Huh. You think Glenn Cook is being a little bit self-referential there? Oh, you know, I didn't think about that. To get them inspired? I mean, The Black Company is a very awesome series of books. And if you think about it, Croker is the author of The Black Company. So we're enjoying the series that he's telling, and maybe the Black Company would enjoy mm-hmm. hearing about themselves that way, too. So I'm getting a different sense for Shadows Linger versus the Black Company, the first book. In this particular sense, I think Croker has kind of a, a toned down... His role, you mean, as narrator? Yeah, exactly. Like, in, in book one, it was, it was much more obvious that he was the narrator because he gives a lot of his own opinions. I don't see that when it comes to the chapters where we're with Croker. 
but obviously we're spending chapters completely away from Croker also. And in those chapters, the protagonist is Raven or Shed or... I think it's Shed, actually. It's Shed, yeah. The Black Company have been marching for 146 days, and they have arrived in the city of Frost. The captain has a meeting with the military governor of the area, and he is told that the limper will be rendezvousing with them and accompany them across the Plain of Fear on a... What do they call those missions? They're the worst ones in video games. Escort. Uh, Escort mission. Escort. Escort missions are the worst. And that's what they're doing. They're going to escort a caravan across the plain of fear. I did want to point out, because it sticks in my craw a little bit, I guess Croker claims that a company in, in good fit condition can move 50 or even 100 miles in a day. 100? 100 miles. That's BS. I mean, is that all through the day, all through the night? Even at 24 hours, if you run a 100-mile race with a support team, right, on good roads, with good equipment, doing it in under 24 hours is a really big deal. So doing it with substandard equipment, without the support, carrying all your gear, it's not possible. You can infer from stuff that happens in these chapters that it's at least 50 pounds of gear that they're carrying each. So they're not running. They're plodding. The truth is a 30, 40-mile plod carrying gear is a long way, and you're, you're spent after that, even if you're in shape. And I thought Glenn Cook was in the military, so he should know He was better. in the Navy. Oh, so he's thinking, like, how far your ship can go in a day. So there's some bad blood between the Limper and the Black Company. So having this guy show up to be there taken is not necessarily the best thing. So we get a little bit more reminders for those of us who didn't read the Black Company about all of the things the Black Company did to the Limper in that first book. I appreciate that, too, because uh, let's just say you picked this book up and uh, you never read the first one. You're pretty much clued in on what happened in the last book. It was done very, very well. He does it in these chapters, the Black Company chapters, and it happens a couple of times. Like you said, if you didn't read the books, it's great. But even if you did read the books, it's kind of nice also because my memory is slightly refreshed. And I don't have to go back and read that entire book to get this information that's pretty crucial. Right. Or at least it feels crucial. It's good backstory. It it helps you to understand. Also, in a series where you're not sure if you're going to see all the characters going forward, when they do show up, you know that they have history with each other. Oh, I don't remember exactly what happened with the limper, but I remember that dude was pretty pissed at the Black Company, if I remember correctly. I think Croker says that they did him wrong several times. (laughs) Is he the guy that comes in and it's like thumping, boom, 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 and he's like this big hulking menace? No, he's not big. He's a small man, but he had a ruined leg, and so okay, he limped everywhere. And they buried oh, okay. him alive in the basement of a torture chamber, maybe in the city of Or. I don't remember. Since this is Croker's reminiscence, and we were in a meeting, we kind of get <laughs> jarred out of it by the captain yelling at Croker. He's like, are you not paying attention? He wasn't paying attention. <laughs> Could you please repeat yourself, Captain? I don't know what you said. That's how I was in school all the time. <laughs> I made some of my teachers extraordinarily mad by asking them to repeat themselves. Yeah. It's a nice little trick, in my opinion, because you know they call on you. You weren't paying attention. You'd be like, "I'm sorry, could you repeat that?" <laughs> oh, uh, they that hated more. it, but they, you know, it was so politely asked. That, anyway, all right. So ten men are going to be taken to the Barrowlands. Whisper and Feather are going to go there as well. 
And among those 10, I think it's Elmo, Kingpin, and some unnamed people plus Croker. Those are the marching orders. And Whisper arrives to ferry them before the limper ever arrives. So we don't get to see the limper. But Whisper seemed like a really normal person. She was engaging. She was polite. And they had wronged her too, if you remember. They're the ones that captured her. Yes, and we're reminded about that also. We don't get the details other than Croker claims that when he sees her, that he captured her and Raven had captured the limper. And that's when she winks at him. So he was there when she was taken, right? She wasn't a taken initially. No, she was a general who rivaled the White Rose. She had suborned the limper and the lady knew about it. So they Uh set an ambush and then the lady showed up and performed the rite of taking on Whisper. And that was the first person that had been taken in a very, very long time. At some point in time in this chapter, I think we get the idea that only one of the original 10 taken is still alive, and that's the limper. Yeah, I think They're that's all true. Dead. Yeah. And the lady has replenished her stock of taken with Whisper, Feather, and Journey. Whisper is there to ferry them. She eyes Croker, and Croker thinks that she recognizes him. She remembers that he was responsible for capturing her before she was taken. And then she winks at him, and they go, like, straight up. He gets hit in the bottom by the carpet that they're riding on. But they cross the plane of fear first. I thought that was cool. And this is, you're introduced to the wind whales for the first time. And the mantas. And on top of them, they're like, I guess, flying remoras of the type. They're like giant manta, turquoise manta rays that will, like, jump off the whales and, like, dive bomb. So these wind whales, they can rise, I mean, over a mile higher than any human can. They said a human being will pass out from lack of oxygen, but the wind whales can rise even a mile higher than that. A stable platform from which the mantas could attack. Whisper, like, fried a few of them, the ones that came too close that were going to threaten them. She had to let go control of the carpet to do so, though. Oh, that's right! They're in absolute free fall while she is defending them against the mantas. Can you imagine being on that carpet, which essentially is like a big bed, but it's rigid, and then it just starts to fall. Ah! I can just imagine just like spin going into this flat spin, and she's just like spinning in circles and like blasting zap, these mantas. Zap, zap, zap. Yep. And then she gets control, and they continue on their way. Oh, but come on! Think about everybody else who's on there. I guess there's only three people: like Kingpin, Elmo, Elmo Kingpin, and, and Croker. Yeah. Oh man, they gotta be just like peeing their pants when they, when they start diving out of control. Oh, yeah. If you already had to go, you know, because like she said, it's a long flight. Well, Croker says that the rule for crossing the plane of fear is that you don't hit first, because if you do so. All of the local denizens will attack you. That sounds like on some level there's a hive mind for all the flora and fauna. It sounds like a video game is what it sounds like. Oh, right, right. They have, they have pheromones and when you <laughs> shoot one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, so they get through the plane of fear. Apparently it doesn't take terribly long. They fly over Deal and then Or, which is that city that they'd been to before. Over time, they come over a virgin forest called the Great Forest, from which the White Rose, 400 years ago, marshaled her forces against the Dominator and won. Then they're descending into a clearing that is no longer so clear, and there's a ruined town there, which is unnamed, I think, and they land in that town. We meet the Eternal Guard. They were effective for 370 years until apathy elsewhere, like, misapportioned their funds or something. And so they're not making sure everything stays in. They're making sure everybody else stays out. That's the purpose? I think the magical wards are preventing both. 
the escape and the entry, mm-hmm. but their job is to prevent people from tinkering with the wards and getting in. Yeah. Yep. And it's been a long time. The, the Eternal Guard have been here for 400 years. The children and grandchildren of the originals took up arms and became guards and their children, etc. It's a hereditary title. It makes you wonder, if they've been doing this for that long, and all of the Taken were imprisoned at one time or were told very recently, who was paying them? Or did they just do it out of a sense of duty? He said it well. He said that apathy elsewhere. So the money was coming from elsewhere. The money dried up. And mm-hmm. so the place has been ruined, essentially. It's, imagine what 400 years of overgrowth would look like. We get those descriptions very soon also. Yeah, eroded, overgrown, in disrepair. Well, it sounds like the town is being restored. It sounds like the barrow land is going to be restored. And that's the goal here. Anyway, so six days later... Whisper has made two more trips ferrying in Goblin and six other Black Company members. Feather and Journey also arrive with their own guards. I think Feather shows up with a bunch of specialists and researchers who are going to start looking into the Barrowlands. I don't know why that's a good idea. And then a whole bunch of laborers as well from Orr. And how are they getting there? I think assume they're walking. Yeah, Orr's not that far. I mean, it's far. but 200 miles. Jeez, well, <laughs> never mind then. <laughs> Well, the lady's expecting a breakout attempt is Croker's estimation of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And so they're bolstering the defenses. That's what's going on. That's what he thinks is going on but anyway. There's only one person left, so. Well, he's the bad one, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Dominator. He's still in the ground. So we find out, again, there's more history in this chapter just about who the Dominator is, his connection with the lady. We get this stuff about Bowman's in this chapter. I don't remember getting anything about the. Oh, it's Bowman's. That's what it is. How they were released. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's 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 a good thing to mention. Sorry, wrong history. Some weeks are going by as the Black Company is slowly making their way here. Croker, Whisper, Feather, Journey, Goblin, and the rest have all kind of settled in. Croker is spending this time reviewing the records of the Eternal Guard. He's very interested in the period of time during which Bowman's was here, the contemporary period for that. I think there's a really descriptive and artful um, murals that the previous guards had painted along the walls over the generations. It's almost like a time lapse. Time lapse. You get a very interesting, like, this is what it looked like when it was pristine and just made. You get to see it now as well. And you get to see it during Bowman's time. So, one little question here. It says, the last was a dragon curled around the Great Barrow, its tail and its mouth. And then it said, a later painting by an eyewitness shows the dragon belching fire on the countryside, the night of the Lady's Resurrection. Bowman's is walking into the fire. So, when the Lady was released, Bowman's was consumed by the fire, consumed by her? I don't know. I assume so. I'm confused. Is the dragon, is it symbolic of something, or was there actually a dragon there? I'm going to assume there was an actual dragon, but it's not there anymore. So it wasn't just some, like, artful earthen berm around the mounds as a barrier. It was an actual dragon? I mean, we haven't seen a dragon in this world yet, but I don't see why there couldn't be. There's flying whales, for crying out loud. And you're right. It's like a month and a half there. Yeah, yeah. No, they spend, some, they spend yeah. some serious time. Six weeks or something. So during his research on the period of time during which Bowman's was active... We find out that Bowman's was there for 40 years in disguise as an antique digger. So basically an antique dealer. 40 years he spent there doing his research, collecting his papers, 
40 years he was undercover before that night when she was released. There's this random guy showing up at the Barrows dealing antiques. That doesn't make any sense to me. There's nobody there but the guardsmen, right? There was a town there. Okay, that's true. There is a town there. It's just in ruin. Okay, but still, 40 years of sitting there selling antiques to a bunch of guardsmen. That was his cover story. Okay. That's what he was interested in. He may have been doing research on that stuff as well. I don't really know. But apparently 40 years, 40 years undercover is pretty amazing in my opinion. It shows some serious dedication to what he was up to. It seems like Bowman's was being manipulated though. That's Croker's estimation that maybe Bowman's didn't release the lady. Maybe he was manipulated by the resurrectionists who wanted to release the Dominator and also being manipulated by the lady. He said at one point that his accident was their premeditated event. Yeah. His wife survived. And her account at the time was that Bowman's was on his way to prevent the ladies being released. That he had her true name. But obviously that didn't happen. Back onto the papers. It said Bowman's wife claims the ladies' true name was encoded in papers her husband possessed. Papers that vanished. Papers that Croker recovered decades later. And that Raven snatched. Yeah, I remember that scene. Yeah. That was in the clearing, right? And he, like, snatched it up before he left. I think they came back for him, but yeah. And at the very end, during the Battle of Charm, he rediscovered those papers because Soulcatcher had them, had never turned them over to the lady, and was using them to her advantage as well. So who has them now? Are they still with Raven? He assumes that Raven still has them, that he thinks that there's an advantage to be had in them. And I would say, if you've got the lady's true name encoded in those papers, that that is true. You have an advantage. And remember what he's up to. He is fostering the White Rose. And yes, Bowman's papers went missing that very night. So think about what that means. Somebody knew well enough to secret those papers, take them away, and keep them out of the hands of the lady. Well, they were originally found by Whisper. They were in Whisper's possession. Possession. But think about how they got there. It may have been Bowman's wife knew well enough, you know, like, get these papers out of here. And they did that very night. All right, so time goes by. They all settle in. Feather and Whisper, Croker says, are very approachable, which is different from the previous Taken. And this is when we find out that all of the previous Taken, except for the Limper, are dead. They destroyed each other at the Battle of Charm, as I recall. Like Bone Nasher and Storm... Storm... Bringer. Whatever. They fought to the death. You know, there was a whole bunch of them died during that battle. One of them died by crashing into the, the keep. Remember that? Yeah, that was the little kid, the Howler. Mm. All right, so sometime later, something is discovered. I think he says it was in the fifth week. Something was discovered that got the Taken very excited. They started ferrying in more of the Black Company, who are now only 500 miles away. And then a week later, they're told that 25 of them are going to be taken via carpet again to Juniper. And there's some connection between Juniper and the Barrowlands, but they don't know what it is. So whatever got them all excited was the fact that they had to get ready to go to Juniper? Is that all it was? No, I think they found something. Glenn Cook said that there were researchers that accompanied Feather. Those are the people who probably found something. And now they see a connection between Juniper. But the explanation that's given is that a year ago, this guy from Juniper was like, Hey, lady, can you help me out? I have a local problem. It was Duke Zimmerlin, the effective leader of Juniper. That was requested over a year ago. And now they're finding that there's a connection between Juniper and the Barrowlands. So the lady is sending 
the black company. So what you're really saying is Raven went to the ends of the earth to get away and he picked the worst spot. <laughs> yeah, he definitely picked a bad spot. <sighs> All right, there's a lot of interesting information in these chapters, the Black Company chapters, but I think we've covered most, if not all of it. Do you guys have anything else that needs to be included? The captain and his people are going to be staying in ore. They're going to get to rest. And then they're going to get their orders to go to Juniper, which is BFE. It's probably equidistant on the west side of the world compared to where they just came from. In the east. And Croker is all very happy that he'll at least be in Juniper when the captain gets those marching He doesn't orders. have to hear how outraged he will be. I got to say, like, if the Black Company is stationed in the Barrel Lands and the Dominator gets out, what are they going to do? What can they do? I don't know. Probably nothing. And the lady knows that. That's her fight, though. I think the Black Company would just be a really good unit to have defending the area. But alas, they're not going to be defending the area. I thought the bulk of the Black Company was stationed at the Barrowlands. No, no, they're all going. But it's going to be a long time. Uh-huh. They're being sent to Juniper. Everybody's being sent to Juniper. But the lady has decided to fund the Eternal Guard again. Mm. They're going to renovate the Barrowlands. They're going to renovate that town. Money's going to be pouring in there. But the Black Company are moving on to Juniper. Wow, that which is all the way to the west. So these guys have had one hell of a slog. I mean, it's got to take them way more than a year in reality to cover that distance. Yeah, I don't know. They're 500 miles away in five weeks or six weeks. And the captain is super proud of that. He's super proud of that. Well, there's a lot of conversation about how it's difficult to move an entire army like that. Yeah, he said it would be foolish to push on a march like that. A general is piping in about the the Russian-Ukraine thing and what is going on there tactically. What, an American general? It was an American general. And he said, he said, amateurs talk about strategy and tactics. Professionals talk about logistics. Juniper, night work. What will one silver buy? A ton of stuff. Apparently. Like wood. Apparently a wagon load of firewood. Uh, and replenishing all of his wine and his beer for the month. Yeah. Like, seriously, yeah. I wish I could live there because... Everything's so cheap. Well, that's what you would get paid relative to your value also, though. Maybe so. But then again, Shed offers like rot gut and watered down, what do you say, sour cat piss? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. All right, so it's a little ahead of time. And I'm sorry I'm saying this, but it's totally in reference to that. Raven finally gets some wine from Shed that isn't crap. And he's all, you've had this here this whole time? Yeah. And Shed's all, yeah, well, I only give it to people that ask. He's all, I want this from now on. <laughs> it has such a funny scene. I like it was that. a good scene. All right, so that's what one silver will buy. I think I did the math. No, I know I did the math, but I think by the end of it, he gets paid 112 silver, and he said that that was five years worth of work for him, which amounts to, it's like a little less than two silver a month or something. 112, that would be 22 per year. Yeah, about two silvers a month. I guess the backstory is he got paid 10. He gave nine to a debtor, Craig, and he used that one to replenish his stocks. It didn't do him any good, however. He was expecting to have a little more customers, but apparently he owes a lot of people money and the debtors just came. Yeah, they all found out. Guess he should have kept two silver. Well, Asa shows up. He's bringing firewood. He's like trying to buy favors from Shed. He brings firewood and he says, Craig knows that you, you know, about your money situation. He, kn- he knows that you're borrowing again. He's already got a buyer lined up for the lily and they're already rounding up girls. They're like, oh, well, in wintertime, desperate women will 
whore themselves out just to make it through winter. But then by the time spring comes and the sailors get here, they're already broken into their trade. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But that's the way that it's stated. And that's it's shed, right? This is not just keep it separated. Got it? Desperate men will kill and steal to survive. And shed is a desperate man. So he asks Raven for a little help. He sure does. You can't sit here. <laughs> to me, it's like Raven was just like this talked about character that never really impressed me. But in these two chapters, you see his personality and he how nonchalant and cavalier. And not just that, but impervious to like fear or threats. I loved it. I mean, Raven really made these chapters blossom. I think they're better than his original chapter. But his original chapter is really good. I reread most of it recently and it was nice. But I think we're getting an even clearer picture of who Raven is Mm -hmm. because he was on like a revenge streak in the Black Company. And now he's just being himself. Yeah, he was emotionally compromised in in the first book. But here he's he's just him. Him in his prime, if you ask me. Oh, definitely. Although he must be 40 or 50 also. I don't think so. I thought he was a lot younger. Eight years have gone by since he got recruited. I thought he was young then, too. Oh, it doesn't matter. Well... Raven says yes to the request for help, but you're not a partner this time. You're a helper. And that help entails going out on the cold, cold night, snowing, terrible weather in a wagon with Raven going through the alleys looking for dead homeless people. He's look at out for a moment and then Raven's all you got to go on in and get one. And so we get a neat little scene with him fumbling around for some dead bodies. One person's like, leave me alone, I'm alive. <laughs> that was the first one he encounters. He's like feeling around because it's dark, it's nighttime. And this guy moves and so he runs. He runs in fear. Well, you know, and the truth is, in a way, Raven is like doing a public service. It's cleaning up the streets. A uh, public service that is already performed by the custodians. Yes, but, you know, they're not going to come out in this bad weather, so... Um, he's saving them the the hassle by doing it for them. I I, <laughs> I have to assume that they would notice rather quickly that like, hey, did you notice that this really terrible weather? Like nobody died tonight. If they got ten or fifteen or twenty a night on average, and now they're only getting two or three, they'd figure it out. Well, anyway, that's what they're doing. They're rounding up these bodies. And Shed is like, hey, what? Why are you doing this, Raven? And he's like, I'm a shipwrecked sailor from the south, and I need money too. And uh, Shed doesn't buy that. Nope. He's thinking to himself that the accent doesn't play out. But he doesn't have the guts to call Raven a liar, so he just leaves it. Oh, God. And he doesn't get any more information, though he may pry out of our hearing. So sometime later, they're done. They've got all the bodies piled up in a wagon, and they start heading out. No, but one of them is moving. It sheds like, this guy's not dead. (laughs) And Raven's like, he will be soon enough. (laughs) He would have died regardless, right? So they travel for an hour, and I guess Shed is kind of deep in thought, so he doesn't recognize where he is the next time he looks up. This is the scene that I was talking about Mm -hmm. where they're on the way to the Black Castle. He recognizes the environs after a a brief period of time, but he doesn't spend a lot of time in the higher parts of the city, and that's what they're driving through right now. Mm -hmm. They're driving through, like, really nice neighborhoods. On the way to the Black Castle. God, just All of Raven's responses are just so perfect. Shed's like, we're heading to the Black Castle. It's like, yeah, what do you think we're going? People live there? Yeah, what's your problem? <laughs> it's, just, it's just like nonchalant. Like, everybody is terrified of this thing. And he somehow he just figures out, and he's like, oh, let's go do business with those mysterious people in the Black Castle that everybody's afraid of. Let's do that. <laughs> So at the Black Castle, it's given a little bit of a description. He said that the shape is resolved into battlements, spires, and towers. So it's like a castle, but it's dark. And when they arrive at the gate, 
Raven jumps down, knocks on the gate, and the door immediately swings open, or the gate immediately swings open. It didn't seem like there was anybody there to open it, but maybe that's just me. They drive the wagon in. They go under this big arch that's got one lantern lighting the only light. And they start dragging the bodies out and throwing them onto slabs in the courtyard. And then out comes a dark shape. The shadowy shape was tall, thin, clad in loose black pantaloons and a hooded shirt. A face all of sharp angles and shadows, lustrous, olive, cold, with a pair of softly luminous eyes. That sounds not human. Why? What about that sounded not human? Luminous eyes. Okay, but if there's one light source in the area, like look at photographs of people, and their eyes always have light coming out of them, right? Because they reflect. Off the back of the... No, just your cornea is reflective. It's nighttime. There's one light. Maybe he's not human, but he did, otherwise didn't sound inhuman to me. Well, also, very clothed. Instead of hooded shirt. In loose black pantaloons? Okay. So he's a pirate? So, like, I'm, like no, I was thinking more of a... Uh, it's kind of like an undertaker, though, or something. He sounded Sicilian to me, with that olive skin and the sharp nose and all that. That's what he sounded huh, like. Interesting. I, I, I didn't put anything like that no into No real-world analog for you? Well, that's who comes out to do business with Raven. And they barter over the price of the bodies on those stone slabs. They barter. Raven's like, no, 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 no. I want 30 for that guy. How do you get into this line of work? I have no idea. I, mean, I asked the same question. <laughs> I have no idea. How do you make that contact? I mean, just like you just go up there one day and be like, hey, I'm looking for work. Oh, okay. Well, well, we need bodies. Bring them by. Okay, so he got 40 silver for the youth. And then he got 90 for the guy who wasn't dead yet. And everybody else, I think, got 30. So they end up with 227 silver, of which Shed gets five. (laughs) Raven reminds him, now, tonight you were a helper, not a partner. Last time you provided the body. This time you're just helping me gather them. So as they're leaving, we get another little description of the dark, glassy, jointless stone. And Shed can see into the walls. He saw bones, fragments of bones, bodies, pieces of bodies, all suspended as if floating in the night. I kind of figured out what I thought was going on. What do you think is going on here? In the opening episode that we did, they talk about how the castle seems to be growing. Yeah. So, you know, we don't hear any hammering going on. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it seems like these body parts or these bodies are somehow creating the battlements of the castle or the foundation of the castle. The growth is due to the additions that Raven is bringing. (sighs) Now, if this place is a foreboding doom, then our hero Raven is actually helping the bad times move along, right? I'm not sure that he's a hero. I'm just using heroes in quotes right now. He's hanging out with Darling. He's doing some good, but he's obviously doing some bad. He's unwittingly. Unwittingly? He said he didn't care. At some point, Shed asks, what kind of place is this? And he's like, I don't know. I don't want to know. They pay good. But seriously, something bad is going to happen. Yeah, the lady's coming. Is happening. I know, and he's feeding that and pushing it forward by giving. He needs money. Obviously, he's got a plan, and obviously he has a certain amount of money that he needs to meet a goal, and then he's gone. So he's got a very short-sighted view of what's going on here. It's like, this is someone else's problem. I need the money that they're offering. I'm going to take it, and then I'm getting out. He says he has a long way to go. So in that six years that he and Darling have been on the run, they've gone through that fortune. 
They must have done. Yeah. They must have done. Juniper the Enclosure. So weeks have passed, and Shed's conscience has prevented him from having a good night's sleep in that time. He has turned down two offers to help Raven, but he still needs money desperately. And now Craig has been going around and buying up all of his other smaller debts. So now he's deep in it with Craig again. Asa is continuing to worm his way back into Shed's good graces. Wouldn't you? He doesn't trust Craig. Smart. Or his people. He says they don't like him. And his usefulness is going to run out eventually. Exactly. Once that happens, he needs a place to stay. He kind of is bartering with Shed in the beginning of this chapter, saying that if something bad happens, I need to kind of hole up in a place. I kind of am hoping that bringing you all this quality wood would make that be the case. And uh, he has money. And Shed's like, well, where'd you get that money? And he, it's kind of like you were saying, Atian, in the in the last show. Shed is trying to get information from Asa, and Asa's smart enough not to give it away. And Shed's kind of rude about it to Asa. Like, the only person that he can kind of lord his power over is that person. But Asa turns it around on him and says, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Asa also admits one of his jobs for Craig is to watch Raven and keep an eye on him. And Shed ruminates over Raven. He's just like, I don't understand Raven. Why is he not afraid of Craig? And in Shed's world, who's afraid of pretty much everything. Yeah, he's a coward. It's mind-boggling that anybody would be unperturbed by Craig at all. Well, you know, in Raven's world, I mean, Craig's like small time. He's this petty little thug who can't, <laughs> whose biggest heavy hitters don't even bother Raven at all. They haven't made a mark. If I was Craig, I would just let this one slide because... He can't, though, because he's threatened Raven publicly. He's made the attempts, and they're not working out. And now he has to kill Raven, or he will look weak. Plus, he's losing guys. Yeah, he's going to die. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's dead. Yeah, but the funny part is, like, Raven doesn't even care about Craig whatsoever. It's just whenever Craig sends a couple of guys his way, he just kills them and goes on. <laughs> he kills them and takes them up to the Black Castle. Oh, yeah, that's a resource. That's like a payday. It's like Craig is paying him. <laughs> All right, so Asa leaves, having that little disagreement with Shed, and immediately Raven shows up, and he says, hey, I got a great idea. You should follow him sometime and find out what he's doing to get his money. So then Raven decides to go out for the day. Shed assumes that he is testing Craig's men, and then Darling watches Raven leave, and then Shed watches Darling watching Raven leave, and he is a horny old man. And she is probably around 18 years old now. This guy's a pig. I can't stand him. What, you don't look at young women with lust in your eye? Not like that anymore, thank you. Old has nothing to do with it. At least you look at the timeline, this is a woman of age at least, you know? We kind of think that darling is, oh, it's a little darling from the first book, but yeah, you're right. she's 18. not nine anymore. Six years have passed, you no, know? No, it's been uh, eight. It's been eight years. Oh, eight. Well, she is attractive to Shed. But he's like, with Raven involved, that's not worth the effort. It's not worth the trouble that's going to come with that. All right, so that passes. But it was mentioned, and it's mentioned twice in a row, so I mention it, right? So a morning soon after, Raven is being delivered breakfast by Shed, and he tells Shed, this is a good day. You should follow Asa today. 
and sheds full of excuses. Well, I can't leave the shop, etc. Mm-hmm. So I'll have your cousin do it. This is when Darling bends over to pick something off the floor, and Shed can't—he just can't think straight because he's watching her. He's like, she has got to wear something that covers her behind better. What I loved about this is Shed's making every excuse why he can't do this thing that Raven's telling him he needs to do. And he's like, well, go get Wally. That's what you do when you need extra help. And he's like, well, uh, he doesn't know sign language like Darling does. And he's like, well, get Lisa over here. When you have to manage ineffectual people or people that make excuses all the time, you have to drag them kicking and screaming. And Raven does a fantastic job. It's like, I've probably done this exact same scene, I don't know, like 50 times in my career where you need to get somebody to do something. They're supposed to do it. You have the power over them. I mean, you can't force them to do it you literally have to give them no excuse whatsoever to turn to before they'll finally agree to it and so he slams his hand on the table and he says i said go and shed goes (laughs) yet another effective management tool all right so shed following asa this section is really straightforward shed follows asa He's rented a wagon in the middle of winter, which is expensive, and he spends half a day gathering firewood, legitimately. And just as Shed is getting tired of watching and bored and stiff and cold, Asa changes pace. He heads uphill through the enclosure and then disappears into a hole in the ground after lighting a torch. Yeah, well, this is where it was confusing for me. So apparently it was super busy, crowded streets. Now all of a sudden they're in the wilderness. It's the enclosure. It's a walled enclosure. Shed says that it was park-like in his youth, but now it's dilapidated and overrun, mm-hmm. much like the Barrowlands. Mm. you got to think, though, in the middle of winter that, I mean, if nobody's there guarding the park grounds, as it were, the local inhabitants would just raid it for firewood because firewood's so expensive. I think that, yeah, um, Asa has found a crack. He said you could duck walk through this Mm -hmm. crack in the wall and get into the enclosure. And that's what Asa has done. Mm -hmm. It's overgrown, so you can't see the crack in the wall. Mm. But that Asa found it. And then there's another wall further in and up against that where there's the hole in the ground that leads into the catacombs that's also overgrown. Asa found that as well. Now Shed knows how Asa's getting his money. He is stealing the burial urns that are attached to every body he goes back to the Iron Lily and he reports to Raven what he has found. And Raven does some quick math. He's like, wait, burial urns on everybody? How many bodies? And Shed's like, oh, I don't know. After all these years, probably millions. Wow. And Raven's doing the math, like I said. And Shed's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is Ace's racket. He's got a lot of excuses again. He doesn't want to edge in onto Ace's racket because it's Ace's. And he's like, no, 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 no. We've, this is interesting. We have to exploit this. But there's monsters down there. <laughs> well, Shed also thinks it's sacrilege. Not that he's highly devout, but... I think he is highly devout, actually. I think at least he's drunk the Kool-Aid. Yeah, right? z- yes, yeah. Well, he believes there's monsters down there. And Raven's like, well... Yeah, describe them to me. Well, well I've never... <laughs> A lot of his protestation is like, it's wrong to do that. He says, think of all those stranded souls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have these urns that apparently have like some money in them or some coins so that on the day of passage, they can go be transported to the afterlife. Pay the ferryman. It's Karen. Yep. And Shed's like, all those souls trapped. And Raven's like, how can anybody with an ounce of brains believe that crap? Dead is dead. <laughs> so, just, I don't know. I just love this. He's just so... 
I don't matter of fact and just like not superstitious and he just states things exactly the way they are or exactly the way he sees them. He's a pragmatist too, yeah, for sure. Pragmatist, there we go. So some more time passes now, and three more of Craig's men have gone missing. Craig himself has been attacked by an assailant. The big guy that we met in the earlier chapters, whose name I think is Count. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. The mountain. He doesn't seem like he's going to survive, but he saved Craig's life somehow. His strength was allowed Craig to live. But anyway, Shed has finally worked up the nerve. He's asked Raven to move out because things are just getting too heavy for him. And in comes Asa asking, please hide me. Craig thinks that I snitched to Raven and they're coming for me. They get into this whole argument because, you know, Shed doesn't want Craig coming on over here because, you know, he's got problems also. He thinks that Craig will kill him because Craig already wants to kill Raven and he already wants to kill Asa. And if he finds them both there, why not just kill everybody? I don't know where Craig's getting all this gusto, having almost died already. Craig is probably desperate because all of his men are now dead and he just got wounded and he thinks that Asa tipped Raven off and Raven's probably, I mean, we can assume that Raven's the one that did all of the killing. (laughs) So that's where he's getting the gusto. He's probably scared and desperate. The only corner that Craig is in is the one he backs his own self up into. But he can't stop. He can't help it. He has to back right. himself into that corner. That's just his nature. He's a bully, and he, he doesn't know any other way. Right. He's going to get himself killed. Sorry, Craig. It's been nice knowing you. Well, Asa thinks Shed owes him, and they argue about it. And Shed's like, I don't owe you anything. He's like, I kept you in wood all winter long, Shed. And I could have told when you and Raven would go out doing the things you do. That is enough to get Raven's attention. And Raven's right there behind him with that dagger in his hand. He's like, let's go to my room. I'm not sure what motivated Raven to take this tactic, but I don't think it was fear of reprisals by any means. He's doing the math on what he needs to accomplish. He has leverage over Asa now Mm -hmm. because he knows what Asa's up to. And he took this moment to pounce because it just fell into his lap. It's perfect. Yep. So up in Raven's room, we don't see it happen. We can infer. You know, he's got the knife in his hand and he's, you know, making threats. But I will have you notice that it's not until they threaten Asa with the custodians that he gives his information. So he's drunk the Kool-Aid, too. They've got a torturer there that apparently can make a rock sing. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Later on, with a pair of wagons now, we've got Asa, Shed, and Raven. And they basically repeat the same process. They head out to the enclo- near to the enclosure. They park the wagons. And after a couple of murders, they're unobserved, and they go into the enclosure. Yeah, there. it was two more of Craig's men. And they actually they were legitimately getting firewood, and they see two of Craig's men hiding in the bushes or something, spying on them. Raven walks off and shed and Asa go get more firewood. When they come back, there's, like, blood coming out of the back of the wagon. <laughs> They get down into the catacombs. It's kind of like natural caves meets catacombs. They're in the older parts, and there's bones everywhere. And there's skulls pegged to the walls. With Each one has an urn. And it's a little bit of an eye-opener for Shed because he sees that the custodians don't treat all of the dead equally. And, I mean, obviously the bones are just scattered. So, like, there's not as much respect towards the dead as maybe is claimed. Less and less people... As time goes on, respect the uh, the practice. That belief is still there that there's monsters down there that you know you need gold 
to get on the ferry you know all that stuff and here we're seeing yeah we'll just throw these bones in here <laughs> realistically they have been doing this for a thousand years or something mm-hmm. and the bodies would pile up until they don't have room for them anymore i mean even in our cemeteries in the past you had to pay rent on the cemetery and like when you stopped they would just fill that grave with another body yeah bodies upon bodies i mean they're stacked up like cordwood i think he said yeah but there's still just scattered bones everywhere and Raven's disappointed in the urns. Some of the wealthier folks that have been interred here could afford being mummified, and the quality of their bodies is significantly higher. So Raven's like, oh, well, let's just focus on the mummified ones for the payoff. So they set it up such that there's like a winch at the top and a rope going down, and he's pulling out bodies and collecting urns and sending them up one body and then like two dozen urns, like 25 urns at a time. Asa is horrified when he sees that they're stealing the bodies. He's like, what are you doing, Shed? You know, we can't participate in this. This is terrible. He's robbing the graves, but the bodies are sacred objects, I'll remind you. Even though he's damning them to... uh, All those stranded souls. Earth, I guess, you know, whatever. Yeah. I think it's hilarious because Raven uh, isn't part of their religion or culture, so he has no regard for their beliefs whatsoever. He's just looking for a payday. And, and these guys are cowards, and so he just bullies and conscripts them into basically earning him tons of money. He's just like Craig. He's going to Craig him up in the end. Yeah. yeah. That's for sure. Shed inspects himself during this scene. He already has lost his compunction. He doesn't care. He'd rather have the money. When he began... In the eleventh uh, chapter, uh, shed, he was already kind of hoping that someone would like you know keel over in his establishment. He's desperate. He needs money. You know, he goes and he picks up dead bodies off the ground. Yeah, and now he's looking at people like, oh, they might be a dead body tomorrow. Yeah, their paycheck can make me money. He was not proud of that, but that's and he's human. And now he's gone to the Black Castle. Yep. And now he's going to be going again. <laughs> Right. They're ready to leave, and Raven said, no, we've got 16. He's like, I figure we can get 30 on the wagons. <laughs> I get 30 dead bodies. Oh, my God. Raven goes with Asa, and Shed pulls on the rope, because I think Asa's too small to pull the rope by himself. Mm. At some point, Shed is like daydreaming between tasks, and he hears a tussle and some screaming, and he's like, huh? they got attacked in the catacombs. They did. And Asa's out cold. Raven has killed whatever it was that was down there, but there was something down there. So the monster story is at least partially true. Shed was freaking out. And he's like, well, we got to get out of here. And he's like, why? There was something down there. I killed it. Let's keep working. <laughs> yeah, he's a pragmatist. He's not afraid. In for a penny, in for a pound. I mean, they're already here. Loaded up and heading back to the Black Castle, Shed is like, what are we going to do about Asa? Do we off him and sell him because live bodies are worth way more than dead bodies? He's like, what do you think we're going to do with him? <laughs> He's not that hard. He'll pull through. Raven's like, all right, that's your call. You know he can't keep his mouth shut, right? It's a repeat of what we've already seen. They've got the bodies out on the slabs. The shadowy figure comes out again. And despite virulent protests, he will not pay more than 10 silver for the mummies. But he is willing to pay a little more for Asa. (laughs) And the two recently deceased or three recently deceased men who work for Craig. Well, Raven took 60% for himself. He did, but he said, this is my partner. He may come alone, and the shadowy figure gives a pendant, a silver pendant of two entwined serpents to shed. Like a caduceus? What? 
I don't see why that would be true, but yeah, that's what it sounded like. Raven tells Shed that this is your safe passage when you come up here alone. So he kept his word. He had told Shed that he was going to hand it off to him. It also sounds like Raven's got enough money and he can just about get out if he's handing over the business. Yeah. Shed gets 112 silver leva, which is five years worth of cash in one evening. Hard day. (laughs) Hard Mm -hmm. day's work. So he should be able to pay everybody off. He can live rich. He can have all the women that he wants. He can rebuild the lily. He can have caretakers take care of his decrepit mother. But as they're leaving, he notices there's a new section of the castle that wasn't there just a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Of the previous time they went out looking for bodies and they had someone that was almost dead, that's the face he sees. Staring out of that glass stone wall. That's nuts. Even if I didn't have a problem ethically, I would stop doing that. This is your city. It's like a giant time bomb. It's going to blow up and spread something horrible. Horrible. Well, if you're wearing a pendant, maybe you're going to be spared. Well, even so. (laughs) When I hear this, I just cringe because, you know, I know there's some people that would do it and say, well, to heck, I'm getting paid. Who cares? And there's people like that all over the world. Yeah, that's reality. It's just like, you know, the guy that wants to shoot the very last rhino. He wants to be the guy who gets the rhino. And damn, it fits the last one. I'm disgusted with that kind of behavior, but even so, even if it wasn't ethical or moral reasons for not helping this black growing castle, something bad is going to happen. I mean, and everybody's going to be doomed. But you're right, he does have that pendant. But ah, I could go in in circles, but I'm scared. Like when I read this, I get nervous. It's absolutely creepy as hell. Yes. I'm thrilled at the prospect because think of 1984 in the state of fantasy. That's when this was written, 84? That's when it was published. That is the end of this section. The castle continues to grow. When Raven and Shed had Asa up in Raven's room, Shed had looked at the room and seen that there was no sign of wealth. And Raven had responded to his look by saying, I invest it. I invested in shipping. So he's been saving his money probably for shipping himself and Darling, I assume, out of there. Maybe, but like we talked about how much or what the value of of a silver piece is here. I can't imagine it costing that much to... to... Maybe he's buying a boat. Oh, yeah, that that would be different, yes. Buying a whole boat all for himself and sailing it south. He did come from a coast town, didn't he? I don't remember the city that he came from. It's where the black company landed and picked him up. It wasn't barrel, it was like opal or crystal, some other... I think it was opal. Opal? It's difficult because there is no map. You you sent me the fan-created map, Mm -hmm. but Glenn Cook did not provide us with the map. And in that way, this is different from normal fantasy as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't look at that map because I want to utilize what Glenn Cook has given me. Mm -hmm. His method of delivering geography and geographic information, Mm -hmm. I would rather use that than look at someone else's map because he didn't make that map. If Croker doesn't know how far they've actually traveled or how fast they can actually move... He's getting it wrong as far as... Yeah. He might be getting it wrong just Well, did you read that quote, what Glenn Cook said about the map? No. Oh, well, that's why I sent it to you. So we had hypothesized about maybe Glenn Cook doesn't want to limit himself by creating a map. On that link I had sent, he literally came out and said, he took the advice of Fritz Lieber, which says, don't ever create a map for your own world because that'll limit you. So he intentionally, as a creator did not create a map for his world so that he would, you know... Not be limited. Exactly what we surmised when we were discussing. You surmised, yes. And it's interesting that Fritz Lieber told him that. (laughs) Uh, You know, those are books that I wouldn't mind doing for this channel also. All right, well, let's wind this episode down. 
We're going to get on to reading the next five chapters for the following episode. That's chapters, what did I say, 14 through 18? Mm-hmm. That's right. I'll see you in a couple days' time. How exciting. <laughs> Thank you.